If you will join me this morning as we continue through the Gospel of Luke and come close to the end, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 23. We will begin in verse 50 of Luke 23, and we will go through chapter 24 and verse 12. The title of our sermon this morning is Risen, and our key words for our worshipers in training are tomb, risen, and living. Now, for years prior to the life and death of Jesus Christ, and even for several years afterwards, there were dozens of people in the Palestinian region who were claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. Some were more popular than others. Some of their claims were more outrageous than others. But in the end, all of them, for the most part, came to the same exact end. All of them were killed. All of them died. The messianic leader is almost, in every single case, killed by execution. And so as a result of that, all of these movements just died out. The people followed, they believed, they listened, they were taught... And then their leader was killed, and it fizzled out. It came to an end. Everybody packed up and went home. That was it. Many were most certainly sad. Others felt righteous that they killed false teachers claiming to be who they weren't. But this thing was common with them, and that was that the supposed Messiah was gone. No more. It was over. This person claimed all of these things, and that was the end. It wasn't true. And if you recall where we left off in Luke, that's certainly what seems to be the case with Jesus, right? Jesus died on the cross. He breathed his last breath. And darkness came upon the land. The curtain of the temple is torn in two, and Jesus cries out, It is finished. And his head falls, and his life comes to an end. Now, remember, last time we looked at all of the different responses of the people. Remember the centurion who looked on Jesus as he died, and he says, Surely this man was innocent. Others who came to observe the spectacle, they walked away beating their breasts, having this emotional experience of all that had happened that day, but for very many of them, probably not actually encountering Jesus spiritually. And then there were those, a small group of those who were close to Jesus. And among them were several faithful women, along with other disciples and family members. And as these people watched and observed all along through Jesus' ministry and here at the cross when Jesus dies, there's something very different about the messianic claim of Jesus as compared to all of the others. What was different about this man versus all of the others? Because at this moment, with Jesus on a cross, life having come out of his body, It didn't seem like much, did it? Perhaps all of the disciples were left thinking, 
we had a really good run, three years. As soon as things started going, they were looking good. Jesus was healing people. He was casting out demons. He gave us a lot of power. We really thought this kingdom was going to be ours. We were going to be his right-hand men. But here we are, just like all the rest of them. He's dead. What do we do now? It's all over with. Well, of course, we know the rest of the story. Of all these dozens of movements, only one did not collapse after the death of its leader. It probably, most certainly, looked very grim for a few days. His followers, his, his disciples had been down. They'd been confused for several days, but not for long. It didn't last long. And not only did this movement not collapse, it exploded. In the course of about 300 years, it spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And out of all the messianic movements, what is it that made the Christian faith different? Well, Christians would say it's because of what happened after the leader of this movement was killed. What is it? What is it that happened to cause this explosive growth in Christianity after Jesus' death? It should have been all over, but it expanded far and wide and fast. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in the Gospel of Luke, the very beginning of what was new, what was going to come. So let's begin where we left off last time. Jesus has just died on the cross, and then we come to verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, we see several things here as we look at what happened immediately following Jesus' death. Several people are involved in the narrative here, but none as important as this man named Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know a lot about Joseph, but here's what Luke tells us. He says he was a good and righteous man who was looking for the kingdom of God. We know that Joseph was a member of the council. He was part of the Sanhedrin, but he had not voted. He had not consented to Jesus' death. Now, it's very unlikely that the rest of the Sanhedrin cared at all what he said at this point. Remember, they were out for blood, but he was not among them. John tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. He was afraid of his own people. Joseph was undoubtedly a rich man, and we know this because, first, he was part of the Sanhedrin. But secondly, 
He owned an unused tomb, and he had fine linen to, to wrap the body of Jesus in. And so that's a little bit about this man, Joseph. J.C. Ryle, thinking about Joseph and his relationship to Jesus, says this, The history of Joseph is full of instruction and encouragement. It shows us that Christ has friends of whom the church knows little or nothing, friends who profess less than some do, but friends who in real love and affection are second to none. It shows us, above all, that events may bring out grace in quarters where at present we do not expect it, and that the cause of Christ may prove one day to have many supporters of whose existence we are not at present aware. These are they whom David calls hidden ones, and Solomon compares to a lily among thorns. What a great friendship Joseph had with Jesus. That in the very end, thinking little of himself, he would come and give Jesus a proper burial. Now we saw last time that Jesus died around 3 p.m. And the sky was darkened from about noon until 3. And the Sabbath began at sunset, which would be in just a few hours. Now the Jewish law permitted no one to work on the Sabbath, which meant that they could not bury the body of Jesus that night or the next day. So there wasn't much time. Joseph needed to go to Pilate. He hoped to bury the body quickly before the Sabbath began. Now recognize, as a Pharisee, Joseph is showing enormous courage. He's stepping outside of what would have been expected of him. Mark gives us a good report here. Mark says, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid." Now, the way that Mark describes that to us is important. He's certifying that Jesus was really dead. Joseph of Arimathea is named here. He's identified as a witness who actually had Jesus' body wrapped up and sealed in a tomb. The Roman centurion, the expert of crucifixion, bore witness to Jesus' death, and he told it to Pilate, who would be the legal authority on the matter. And finally, two women are cited as eyewitnesses to this burial, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. So there are multiple experts. There are multiple witnesses to prove that Jesus really died. And then in verse 54, Luke tells us the Sabbath was beginning. So after seeing where Jesus' body was laid, the women, verse 56, returned and prepared spices and ointments. Now this was a very traditional, common way of dealing with a body in the first century. However, they could not do it on the Sabbath day. So they prepared the spices quickly. They prepared the ointments And they waited and they rested. And Luke says they did all of this according to the commandment. So I want you to just kind of think of the scene here. 
Jesus is now laid in a tomb. The Sabbath begins, and the people are gathering for worship. What was that day of worship like? They meet together for a meal. What was their discussion? You know, I imagine the disciples are sitting around and they are in complete confusion. Probably depressed and shocked, saddened. No doubt a very dark time for them. A lot of tears, not a lot of words. If you've ever had anyone close to you die, you know what that's like in those days. You sit, you maybe talk for a little bit, things seem okay, but then something triggers a thought, a memory. And then the weeping begins again. It feels like you can't weep anymore, but then it comes. I imagine all the disciples sat around that Sabbath day feeling this way. Devastated, fighting back tears. They assumed it was the darkest day of their lives up until this point. Their friend, their Lord, was dead. What happens next? Look at verse 1. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Let's stop there. It's easy for us to overlook here the way in which the women would have gone and approached the tomb that Sunday morning. We read it with this reality in our mind, we know what's coming. And so, in our minds, we're approaching the tomb right now with this assurance that Jesus has risen from the dead and it's glorious. But I want you to put yourself in their sandals for a minute. They're not approaching the tomb assuming he was raised from the dead. They arrive with spices and ointments to finish preparing his body for a final burial. They were depressed. They were probably exhausted. They were mourning and they felt there was no hope whatsoever. In Mark 16 we read, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us to enter into the tomb? They were worried about the details. How are we going to get to his body? And surely on on top of all that, they did not expect anything except more sorrow when they got there. They had been thinking about Jesus. They had been mourning his death. And now they were going to see his lifeless body. Have you ever taken flowers to a cemetery, visiting the grave of someone you love? Let me ask you, when you were walking up to that, what did you expect? You expected it to be the very way you saw it last time. You expected that the grave was not going to be empty. And even if it was, you wouldn't anticipate that they had risen from the dead. So let's be careful here. We, we have a tendency to read the Bible with the whole story in mind and not thinking in the way that they would have been thinking. But you and I would not have been any less confused. We would not have been any less shocked than these women as they approached onto the tomb. And what would have been their first thought? What was their first thought? The body of Jesus. It's not here. It was stolen. 
That was their first thought. John records the words of Mary Magdalene. She said, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. So not only are they grieving, not only are they hurting from all of the pain of the events over the last couple of days, now the stone in front of the tomb that they couldn't move was moved away and they went in and they looked and the body was missing and they assumed someone stole it. Initially, this empty tomb intensified their distress. They were probably coming to the tomb thinking, this could not get any worse than it is right now. And yet, by all indications, it seems that maybe it had. Look at verse 4. When they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise. And they remembered his words. Now, up front, I want to point out something that really indicates for us the truthfulness of what Luke is writing here. Remember, Luke is writing this entire gospel account to his friend Theophilus, who is not a Christian yet. Now, there's two things that Luke wouldn't do. First, if this was all made up, Luke wouldn't make a group of women the first ones who were going to be eyewitnesses to this event. In first century culture, a woman's testimony was not accepted. Women didn't testify in court, and if you wanted credibility to your story, you simply would not have referenced that women were the first to see it. So that's the first thing. Luke is simply providing a narrative. He's sort of saying to Theophilus, I'm not trying to persuade you of anything other than the truth. This is what happened. The other thing is this. If you were trying to convince someone of some fanciful story that you made up, you wouldn't begin with a bunch of people who were completely confused about what was going on. Just think about it. Jesus was condemned and executed. Joseph of Arimathea comes out of the darkness. Something happens to him because he was not a man walking with them before, but all of a sudden he shows up. And now we have women. They followed Jesus. They've watched. They've marked the spot where he was buried. They saw his body laid in the tomb. They saw this great stone rolled in front of it. Now they're coming back after a couple of days, sorrowing, sympathizing with one another, Their friend Jesus is now, at least in their minds, absolutely dead. So we have women. They're coming now to their their friend, to this empty tomb. And they're perplexed and they're confused and they think the body was stolen. Now listen, if I wrote this story and I was making all this up, the women would have immediately remembered that Jesus was to be resurrected. In fact, they would have all just been sitting around on the Sabbath day waiting waiting, and all together they would go to the tomb rejoicing because they knew he wasn't there. He was resurrected. And then they'd all go back into town and tell this great story. There would be much rejoicing. Everyone would come to salvation and live happily ever after. 
So tell me why, apart from being the truth, would Luke include these details in his writing to Theophilus? There's a big difference between a story we read that's written by a reporter or journalist and someone who's gathering these facts from eyewitnesses, they're part of the action, versus someone who's sort of this omniscient narrator of the story, like you have in a fairy tale. If you read a fairy tale, you have this omniscient narrator who gives you a nice, tidy story, but it doesn't have a lot of details. But here, while we look at these gospel accounts of the resurrection... Why do we have this? Why do we have the names of people? Why the specific details? We have eyewitnesses. We have all of these things. All of the gospel writers are saying, here's the people who were there. Go talk to them if you don't believe me. And you know, for the skeptic, facts are sometimes pretty inconvenient things, aren't they? Particularly when we don't like what the truth is. So our culture doesn't work like this, right? We operate simply based on likes and dislikes. That's why Facebook is so popular. But the stubborn thing about facts is that it doesn't matter if you like them or not, they are there, and you have to deal with them. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't much a fan of the resurrection, was he? But then he had this personal encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and it didn't matter what he liked. It was a fact. And you know, most skeptics you'll talk to are opposed to Christianity because they don't like the moral teaching of Scripture. But if we put that aside for a minute, what about the resurrection? What if that's true? Well, then they're stuck. If the resurrection is true, you have to deal with all of the rest of Scripture, even the parts you don't like. In fact, I'd say about Paul that he disliked the resurrection even more than the most avid skeptics today because he was actually doing something about it and he was killing Christians along the way. This is why he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection never happened, then our faith is in vain. It's foolish. It's a waste of time. If there was no resurrection, as Christians, we above all other men are the most to be pitied. If the resurrection isn't true, life just stinks, you die, and it's all over. That's worthless. Why are we wasting our time? Now, the world's going to tell us You believe in Jesus, that's nice. That's good for you. I'm glad that's working out for you. You're a different person, wonderful. So glad for you. That's not what the Bible says, is it? The Bible itself says if this thing isn't real, you are wasting your life away. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we have no hope because we're still in sin and we cannot live up to God's righteous standard and obtain salvation that he gives to his people. See, the problem with false religion is that you don't realize it didn't work until it's too late, right? At the end of your life, you may think, oh, it's working, I'm doing great. And then you die. Oh, I'm in hell. It didn't work the way I thought it was. I was a happy Buddhist, but now I'm a Buddhist. (laughs) 
As you see, that's why this is so important. This is why the resurrection is so vital. Our faith is not mainly about life here and now. It's about eternity. So if the resurrection didn't happen, all of this is pointless and is in vain. It's futile. If you feel good about your life now, but whatever you have faith in doesn't save you for eternity, what's the point? So you see, the issue is not, it works for you, that's nice. As long as you're happy, are you happy? That's all that matters. That's subjective garbage. I had a family member once tell me, I don't care what my children believe in. I just care that they believe in something. It's like saying, I don't care how you kill yourself, just that you do it. It's the same outcome, isn't it? Faith cannot be a subjective thing. That's why knowing of Jesus' resurrection and being assured that it actually happened is so important to Luke. It's so important that Theophilus knows this from Luke, and it's so vitally important for us. We have to be rooted in the objective reality of the resurrection. I have to be able to ask, will this get me through the grave? And if the answer is no, because there's no resurrection, then we are wasting our time. So we have these facts And Luke presents them to Theophilus. He's presenting them to us. And in a sense, he's drawing Theophilus to a place where these women were. Complete and total confusion. Luke understood that if Theophilus were ever to come to Christ, then he would need to be thrown in confusion. Look, verse 4, the women were, Luke said, perplexed. And they hear from the angels who say, why are you looking for the living? Among the dead. In other words, why have you come to the tomb of a dead man? Jesus is alive. And what happens? It's instant for them. Jesus was dead. Now they encounter the objective reality and they're brought to remember the words of Jesus that he had been speaking all along and they get completely turned around. You see, the angel helps these ladies. They These two angels say, do you remember what Jesus told you? Do you remember how he said he was going to be killed and then he would rise from the dead? And then what does Luke tell us in verse 8? They remembered his words. They were illumined. It took the angel to point them to just one verse of Scripture There were many times that Jesus made mention of this, but they just needed one reminder of what Jesus had said, and it flooded into their minds, and they realized all along that they had been looking through the wrong end of the telescope. They're now discovering who Jesus really is, that he is who he says he is, and here's another verification of that reality. So you see, the confused are illumined. And now instantly we will see they believe it all. They're brought to encounter reality. Their world gets turned upside down. That's Luke's hope for Theophilus. And if you don't know Christ, that's my hope for you. That you would have an encounter with the living Christ and your world would get turned upside down. 
Now, before we press on, I want you to think about something. If you believe you're a Christian, you have to think about this question. Would it make a difference at all in my life if Jesus was still dead? Now, I'm not talking about Christianity rising and falling on the resurrection because it does. What I'm talking about is you personally, in your life. If Jesus stayed dead, would your life be exactly the same? Has it made any difference whatsoever in your life that Jesus is alive? Or would you just be going about the same as if he were? It doesn't matter. This is the difference between moralism and true Christian faith. A moralist says it doesn't really matter. The Bible has some valuable principles. They seem to work, so they're worth applying. But if he didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't really, it's not a big deal. For the Christian, we have tremendous hope because Jesus died. We sing about it. We, we just sang about it. Jesus lives and so shall I. I'll be raised from the dust with Christ on high. That's our hope. So what shall we fear? Neither death nor life nor powers nor principalities. Nothing really gets in the way of my ultimate reality that rests in a hope that is mine in Jesus Christ who lives. And so if you're a Christian and you're in Mosul, Iraq right now, and your child's head is being cut off in the park. The resurrection matters. It matters a great deal. Because I can say, this life is of little account compared to what awaits those who rest and trust in Jesus Christ. I have every reason to rejoice even in the most horrific times of life. I have every reason to live because Jesus lives. So does it make a difference to you? Have you been thrown into confusion only to have the truth of God's word illumined for you that you might believe? Now, one more thing I want to point out in this text, and it's how Luke refers to Jesus. He gives Jesus two different titles here in this section. Verse 7, he calls him the Son of Man. And that's really important. This title in the Old Testament refers to a great figure who was prophesied about when the Messiah came to bring God's kingdom, to restore life for those trusting in him to something like the way life ought to be. It's a very intentional reference on Luke's part because of what it indicated. He also calls him in verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in antiquity, people didn't read books silently the way that we do. Most often, they would get a book and they would read it aloud because they didn't have shelves of books, and so everyone wanted to hear it. There wasn't many available. So I can imagine Theophilus is reading this out loud for the first time. Imagine it, a man of the Roman political system reading this out loud. He reads, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You think he stumbled on those words? the Lord Jesus. Theophilus is part of a system of government where Caesar is called Lord. 
Can you imagine Luke slipping this in, sort of smiling and thinking about his friend reading this out loud? Luke's quietly saying to Theophilus, my friend, where are you spiritually right now? Who is Lord? And that question's for all of us. Where are you spiritually right now? Is it just Jesus, a man who lived and died, maybe rose from the dead? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ who rules and reigns and rose from the dead and he reigns triumphantly forever and ever? Do you have hope because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man? So what happens from there? Look at verse 9. Returning from the tomb, the women told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So what do these women do? They excitedly returned to the disciples and they announced, Christ is risen. I imagine they burst through the door, full of energy, beaming with excitement, and all of the men are sitting around, still weeping, eating their breakfast. We have Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and various other unnamed women, and they tell the men, Jesus wasn't there. We, we saw two angels, and they came, and they told us, Christ is risen. He's risen from the grave. How do they respond? Verse 11, these words seem to them an idle tale. They didn't believe them. Perhaps even one of them said, It's an old wives' tale. Stop messing around. This isn't a joking matter. We're all very sad right now. How are you even laughing about this? Now, again, if you're making up a story, would you really write something like this in there? These very men who are going to be responsible for establishing the church and gaining the following of Christ, would you write this in there? I wouldn't. Luke's pretty smart. I don't think he would. But it's the facts. It's what happened. So as would have been consistent with the time, they didn't believe the women's testimony, did they? Except for one of them. There was one man sitting over in the corner who had to see it for himself. Verse 12 tells us that Peter, oh, Peter, and all the Southerners say, bless his heart, Peter, He had to go see. And praise God that he did. I'm going to check this out. And notice what Luke points out. Peter didn't walk. Peter didn't go slowly. Peter ran to the tomb. And as he got there, he looked in and he saw that the linens were there by themselves. Now, if a body is stolen, if a grave robber is coming to take a body, is he going to stop real quick and fold up the linens real nicely and set them It's a foolish notion. Peter rushed to the tomb. He looks inside and all he sees is linen. And Luke tells us he went home marveling at what had happened. 
He was stunned. He was, he was disconcerted. He was puzzled. And like everyone else initially, he was confused. What's fascinating in the text we'll see next week, the people again confused. And then at the end of the chapter, we'll see the people confused. Everyone's confused. Notice the pattern. Whenever someone discovers the resurrection, when they have some encounter with the truth of the resurrection, their initial response is confusion. So rest assured The first century people were just as perplexed by the reality of the resurrection as people are today. They found it just as inconceivable as people do today. The only way anyone was able to embrace the resurrection was by allowing the evidence itself to challenge and change their worldview. Because their view of this was that it was impossible. But now they see that it was made possible. So they all, including the disciples we see here, they had just as much trouble with the claim of the resurrection as you might. And yet the overwhelming evidence, both the eyewitness accounts and the changed lives of Jesus' followers, was overwhelming. So the pattern we see is the people are confronted with the resurrection, and at least initially they're confused. But then they will be illumined by the truth and then they will go and want to tell others about it. Then there are, they tell those people, they hear it, they're confused. But then they're illumined by the truth and they want to go tell others. And as they tell others, those others are confused and they're illumined by the truth and they want to go and tell others. And it goes on and on and on, even to this day. This is what the resurrection does. It confronts us with the reality That if Jesus rose from the dead, and all the evidence points to the reality that he in fact did, then we have to deal with everything else the Bible calls us to. And the Bible calls us to repentance and belief in Christ as the king who will reign forever and ever, to give our lives over to him that we might live in obedience to the one who gave himself for us. As for me, I can honestly say that I've staked staked the entirety of my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. There are a lot easier ways to live than as a Christian pastor. A lot less stress and criticism and ridicule, but... If the resurrection is real, it's worth it all. But putting my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact that Jesus lives But if his body and his bones are still somewhere in Palestine, they've disintegrated through time. Nothing has meaning for me, nor do I have anything to provide for anyone else. All that I've told you, all that I'm seeking to teach my children, all that I've sought to live by is a complete and total waste. And it means nothing, and it produces nothing, and is worth nothing 
in this world if Jesus isn't alive. The cross would simply be some massive injustice that we should mourn over because an innocent man was put to death who thought he was going to rise from the dead. You see, death without resurrection is pointless. And Jesus is no more God than anyone else who died at that point. But having been resurrected from the dead, having been raised up, we can sing, death is crushed to death, and so life is mine to live. Why? Because I've been raised with Christ. And I will rise from the dead as he is risen from the dead. I will live forever as he lives forever. For those of you here this morning who are confused by the resurrection, you're in good company. And I pray that your confusion will turn to illumination and to faith and that you might repent and believe the gospel. For Christ died to save sinners from the wrath of God and has risen from the dead that we might have everlasting life. I pray that you would turn to Christ, that you would live in the power of his resurrection, which makes it possible for the old life that we have lived to pass away, that new life might come. And I assure you, there's plenty around here who can tell you our encounter with Jesus, the resurrected living Jesus, has put the old man to death and has brought the new man to live. And if there's one great evidence in all of our lives that Jesus lives, it's that. We are not the same people. We're not the same people because Jesus lives and works and continues to work in our hearts and our lives day by day by day that we too might live. What a glorious truth that we have a glorious, loving God who would give us life eternal with him. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice today. We rejoice, oh God, that we're not making a trek to a tomb to find a dead, lifeless body and having to try to explain why we've given our lives to one who is buried in the grave. Father, we rejoice that we come to a Christ who lives and rules and reigns and will for all eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. And for those of us who are his children, that we too will be raised up. That when we die, we merely fall asleep in Christ and we awaken to his warm embrace. And so together we can truly say with the Apostle Paul that to live is Christ, but to die is gain because death is crushed to death and we have a life to live. I pray, God, for those who do not know Christ this morning, that you would raise them from death to life. For those of us who trust in Christ and have staked all of our lives upon him, may you reassure us of the truth of the resurrection. And may our lives be full of hope and joy because Jesus lives, having died on our behalf and by the power of God, coming up from the grave to reign and rule forever.
Lord, thank you for making us your children and giving us so much to rejoice in. Now may we encounter all that we encounter in this life, the circumstances before us, the suffering that lies ahead of us, the trials and tribulations that we will endure. May we encounter all of it and say with the Apostle Paul, it's all a light momentary affliction compared to what is yet to be revealed to us as children of God. May we rejoice because Christ lives. Amen.